right, welcome back to the Paperless Federalists. I'm Justin. And I'm Carrie. All right, Carrie. Hey, welcome back. I know it's been a while, um, and I'm uh, glad you're still with me. Um, and that hopefully somebody, somebody out there is still with us. Uh, so I want to kind of address that elephant in the room real quick. Uh, I just want to say for the listeners who may be tuning in, uh, haven't been with us since the beginning, um, you know, just a little by way of introducing ourselves, Carrie and I are both uh, attorneys. Um, we're both litigators uh, on top of that, um, which is a type of attorney uh, practicing in different states here uh, in the union. Uh, but we've, we've known each other for, for many years, uh, having worked together previously. Um, in that against regard, one huh? against one another. Yeah, that's true. That's right. Um, and I would say that also, you know, we're both married. We both have several children. Um, and I've got two, Carrie's got three. It, you know, so on top of trying to maintain a household and, and, and run a family, um, uh, the world of being a litigator is, is essentially that any minute you're, you know, a bomb can drop on your desk and what you thought was a, a good, easy, calm week that you had planned to just turn into a 60, 80 hour work week. And then you, you live like that for a few weeks or maybe a couple months until the case is over. Um, that's the kind of world I've been in for a good bit of this year. Uh, I think Carrie's had a similar experiences uh, over the last couple months. And all of that is, you know, we thank you for, for sticking around. If you're still around and you're listening, um, just sort of an apology and, and excuse as to why I keep saying like, oh, no, we're back. We're going to keep doing more. We'll be more uh, um, timely with but things. But this time we're back back. And yeah, for sure. <laughs> until, the, until, until our next several months of hiatus. Yeah, exactly. For, for the time being, I have uh, waved the white flag in all my cases, sent my family away, <laughs> and given up on so, all other useful activities so, uh, in order to get back to doing this podcast. So, And hopefully we will be here and, and be more regularly. That is our intent. Um, and Regularity, yes. Re- yeah, uh, regular releasing of podcasts. Uh, that's what we would like to be doing. Um, uh, but we're trying. It just sometimes, you know, life, it, it really has gotten in the way for both of us this year so far. Uh, so we're going to try to. But no more of that. No more life. Yeah, no more life. No more life and interesting things. <laughs> Podcast only. Only late 18th century. <laughs> um, exactly. Papers. <laughs> so with that, with that said, uh, Carrie, if you don't mind uh, um, re- resuming your role as a summarizer in chief and do a quick uh, highlight of uh, a fairly short paper here, Fellers number 28. Sounds good. So this is another Hamilton paper. And uh, we're wrapping up uh, the sort of the military series of papers he was doing there, talking about, um, you know, assigning the power of uh, military force uh, directly to the federal government um, and why it's not something anyone should worry about. And so um, to summarize the paper briefly... Because uh, it is sort of like an epilogue to that series. Wait, 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 wait. So, well, let me let me cut in here. I'll give you the one yeah. sentence summary. Hamilton's version is this: If you don't agree with me, you're stupid, and I can't talk to you. Well, that's the, <laughs> that's the one sentence summary. Federalist Papers. I'm I know, but this paper summary to Federalist Paper Twenty Eight. It's really so applicable to, to this one. Go ahead, though. Yes. Uh, basically, starts out by saying, "Look, sometimes the federal government, the government, just needs to use force. It can't be avoided." You know, you got some people who are just going to, you know, they're incorrigible. They're going to re- rebel against the rule of law. Yeah. Um, they say, but, you know, if there if there's a rebellion in, in some small part of the state, it's not really a big problem. The rest of the state is not affected by that rebellion or 
think it's contagion, he calls it, uh, you know, yeah. comparing it to a disease. They can all get together and save it. If the whole state is uprising, um, then that state has to raise troops and sometimes maintain the troops to stop all the lawlessness and rebellion. Um, but uh, you know, a national government would be much better at uh, you know re- revisiting one of his uh, old themes. You know, mm-hmm. national government would be much better at suppressing rebellions in particular states that were getting out of hand, they were creating lawlessness and chaos. Um, he says, look, for those of you who object to this power of the national government uh, having, you know, uh, standing armies, if the states were separate states, uh, you know, separate states and separate nations, mm-hmm. or if they were part of confederacies, you know, he, as a, again, another theme that he's revisiting, they'd also need standing armies. But in addition to all of the risk that you'd have of the, the standing armies suppressing the population, they'd also be fighting each other as well. Um, he says, but, but, you know, regardless of that argument, the government's military power is going to be in the hands of the people through their elected representatives. And if these representatives betray the people, the people can rebel against them. Um, and if they rebel, they're going to be more powerful as part of a unified nation because they're going to be spread across the many states, um, and they're going to ha- you know, be more distant from the central government to be able to build up their rebellion than they would be if they were just isolated in a single small state that, that their rebellion could be easily crushed. Yeah. Um, they said, also, in this constitutional federalist system, the state governments are going to protect the people against the federal government, um, and even as the federal government increases, because he says, well, you know, right now we don't really need to worry about standing army. He says, the whole country doesn't have enough money to really support a standing army. But even once we get those kind of resources, um, in proportion to the increased ability of the federal government to maintain standing armies, the resources, power, and number of the people will also proportionally increase. And so, uh, and then he closes sort of by uh, undercutting everything he just said. He says, um, you know, it may be the case that one day that's not true. Uh, that one day the uh, you know advances of technology and other things will undercut the ability of the people to rebel against the federal government. But he essentially says, when that happens, we're not going to be able to stop it anyways. And that's okay. it. That's so, his cold stop. We're gonna so get that's to that, the paper and brief. We're going to get to that cold stop, but that's not how I read his cold stop. So we're going okay. we're we're to talk about that later. But let's – you know how I love chrono- chronology in top to bottom fashion. So – uh, let's chronology. I am. <laughs> let's, let's start going in chronological order. Yep. I start. I started life at the beginning, Carrie, and I'm planning on ending it at the end. I don't want to go out of order. <laughs> Isn't there another term? And I don't know it. Isn't there another term? Like you're, we're not going to really time order. We're just going in order. Order. <laughs> I know. I know. I'm, I'm right, fine touche. with that word. That's is. fine. I I may be misapplying chronology. You're right. <laughs> All right. Enough nerdum. All right, we'll kick it off at the top of uh, Federalist 28. So he starts off right at the beginning and he says, you know, that there may happen cases in which the national government may be necessitated to resort to force cannot be denied. It's basically war and and, and conflict is just, it's going to happen, period. Full stop. It's the idea that you're going to live in a world where there's full peace and you're never going to have a conflict or an uprising or a rebellion or or some need for a national military or some form of military to physically mm-hmm. put down an opposition. That's fantasy land. <laughs> okay. And it's just not going to happen. 
And that's mm-hmm. so he sets that he sets that sort of like uh, debate parameter right out of the right out of the gate. Um, and which was weird for me, you know, because it's weird for me in a way that he's setting up the natural first idea he has mm-hmm. about the purpose of a military is to suppress the nation's own population rather than to provide for foreign defense. <laughs> yeah. In a way, that's sort of worrying because yeah. <laughs> that's not the first idea I have when I think of the purpose of a national military. And I think it's the, not the first idea a lot of people have. Uh, yeah, I mean, I would, I would hope so. <laughs> crushing uh, dissent. Crushing dissent. Sounds sort of so, evil to me. So, yeah, so they, um, yeah, this, this paper, he gets kind of dark. There's a couple one-liners in here that really just uh, stuck out to me, and that was right off the gate, obviously, the first one, um, that made me really go, wow, that's kind of mm-hmm. dark. Um, so he says, look, you know, insurrections endanger basically all forms of government. Uh, so you're going to you're going to have to deal with it. It's going to happen. Um, but he has this he posits this sort of like uh, formula that, you know, if a government is going back to his if a government's good from the last or one of the last papers we talked about, that if the yeah, government I is I recall that point, if the government's good, uh, then the people you know, are going to be less likely to support an insurrection. Because people like good. They do like good. So, so basically... They don't like bad. They don't like bad. <laughs> I like good. They like good. <laughs> um, so with that sort of, like, kindergarten logic, um, you know, people like good things and they don't like bad things. Let's just run with that for a second. It's... Good is definitely more good than bad. <laughs> yeah. But if, if, if that's... Let's just assume that's a workable and that's an applicable sort of framework framework that that's how people in a society behave that if they believe government is well functioning and um have their best interests and are working and tomorrow can be a better day through the collective efforts of you know civilized government and that in that instance and in that scenario they're less likely to revolt or want to overthrow that government let's take it to today where are we at now applying that same logic like, at, at what point, you know, I mean, is it really that laughable or is that really just how the world works? I mean, do revolutions and resurrections happen, uh, insurrections happen when enough people throw their hands up and say, you know what, this just isn't working anymore. I'm tired of it. So, something's got to be done. Something's better than this. And they give up well, on government. Well, a dangerous part of um, Hamlin's first paragraph here in Federalist 28 is it seems to me that the way he frames up the issue originally is that he makes an implicit assumption that insurrection against the government is is presumptively illegitimate and that the only way to change the system is by to work it, to reform it from within through like elections, legislation, etc. Because Mm -hmm. that's how he frames it. He talks about, you know, uh, I'm trying to remember the exact words, uh, the uh, political doctors who disdain the admonitions of experimental instruction. In other words, I think he's characterized the opposition as being like people who, instead of being patient to see how a system plays out, they want to try to rebel and fight it with for- and you know, need to be suppressed with force. Hmm. <sighs> yeah, um, and that's a dangerous way of framing. Uh, which is, uh, but it's also unusual that later on in, in the paper. He, talks he about, yeah. seems to reverse himself and he suggest does. that well, if enough people, if enough people support a rebellion, then it be, goes, it defeats the presumption of illegitimacy yeah. and is now legitimate. Yeah. But it's, 
But that first paragraph where he frames up rebellion as presumptively mm. illegitimate, it's an unusual opening position from someone like himself who rose to fame and power through engaging in a revolution <laughs> against his government, <laughs> you know, which yeah. was England at the time. Yeah, of course. yeah. That was he. Re- you know, the, mm-hmm. he was a leader in a rebellion against the national government, which at the time was the was England. Mm-hmm. So it's weird. These like rebellion is presumptively bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, just for context, then he goes through and he he says, you know, hey, the states have had to do this, and they've already had to do it. They had to do it in Massachusetts. They had to do it in Pennsylvania. Um, where they had to put down these uh, sort of minor insurrections and they had their for- local forces um, mm-hmm. and and they did it. So if the states can do it, why is it so terrible for the national government to be able to have the same power? Um, mm-hmm. And, and just, so just for context, he talks about he talks about that. Um, the uh, one of the things where I, I, I think his logic is, is undercut as well mm-hmm. is when he talks about how um, the, they're being part of the, the national, you know, being part of a unified nation. It will help people to rebel and make it harder, you know, make it easier for the populace to rebel against the federal government if it goes overboard mm-hmm. um, and resist its power is he seems to make an assumption to a degree about how rebellions work about how opposition works and again i feel like he should get it based on his own experience in the revolutionary conflict against england which is that you know any insurrection any rebellion doesn't like hatch from the egg fully formed you know yeah through you know in modern history and ancient history usually it's a slow progression of you know hey we disagree a little bit now we disagree more strongly now we're launching a media campaign. Now some of us are taking up arms, mm-hmm. and so a lot of people. You know, the dying. idea that <laughs> yeah, the government's not going to be able to crush that because there's a lot more people than there are the government. I think that's a weak point because that's mm-hmm. not how rebellions tend to work throughout history. It's not like you know, if you take the numbers of you know, hundreds of you know, say 300 million people in America, a million man army, roughly, you know, just throwing numbers out here. It's not like all 300 million people are going to wake up one day and be like, "Oh, we're all going to rebel." You know, it it's it would be a slow process if it ever happened mm-hmm. where you know, just a few people and it would spread and it would spread and it would spread. And so it'd be easy, you know, you don't get to that proportional problem issue of 300 million versus a million mm-hmm. until everything's gone to hell in the handbasket. I think you're you're right. I'm sorry. I'm trying to read my notes and, and listen to you at the same time. And no I'm not, problem. I'm, I'm not doing a very good job. I'm trying to break now and again because I don't want to turn this. I don't want to no, be no. just monologuing all night. No. I know I've sometimes got a tendency to do that. No, so no. Make sure you have a um, chance to chuck some rocks. So I, let me let me get. I got to figure out my bag here in front of me. Um, the uh, so let's just in order to get myself back kind of back on track. It, we. You, 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 Hamilton goes and talks about confederacies and talks about states, and because you know the con, in prior papers, you know the anti-federalists were, you know they were they were debunking some of the anti-federalist arguments and yeah it's and talking such an old straw man it is you know it's, you know <laughs> be frank. he goes back to this idea of hey look here's another reason why confederacies don't work you know this is what the anti-federalists want and it's yeah. stupid when it's not really been conclusively it's established that that's, that's really what, what they, they want, want yeah. But for the benefit of the listener, in case you're tuning in the first time, one of the things 
uh, you know, in this instance where he, he says, look, uh, you know, the Confederacies would need the same power. And if, and if the whole union was just dissolved into, in this, you know, 13 states, they would need the same power. But, and you mentioned this before, um, in the summary that it, it's just going to be even more problematic because not only are they going to be dealing with on the individual state level or in the four or five Confederacy level, mm-hmm. um, they're going to have this uh, possible insurrections from within, but now they have people on their border or states on their border that may not agree with anymore, and they're going to have to use the armies even more um, to um, ward off the other confederacies or the other states in a, in a long enough time horizon. So, yeah, um, which is and I feel like now true. it's not you just know. a straw man; it's also a red herring because it's really not responsive to the argument of. Will the national government's military suppress the people or not? Yeah, it's just throwing a different problem out there and arguing about that. I mean, that's yeah. to me almost the literal definition of a red herring argument. Of <laughs> let's argue about this other something thing. Something other thing. Yeah, change topic. Yeah. Um. So then he gets this idea though, uh, where he said, you know, if the representatives of the people at the national level just betray their constituents. Uh, there is then no resource left, but uh, in the exertion of that original right of self-defense, which is paramount to all positive forms of government, and which against the usurpations of the national rulers may be uh, exerted with infinitely better prospect of success than against those rulers of individual states. So uh, the breakdown of that is, look, if it gets to be too bad and, and the federal government becomes too much of a regime, uh, oppressing people, the people can just rise up again like we just did, and they've got a better chance of rising up collectively against one government than than if they're in a smaller state or a smaller confederacy, and maybe multiple governments need to be overthrown, or you know the, the individual smaller group of people have less resources of which to draw upon, and mm-hmm. therefore have to try to overthrow this government, and they're easier easier to be suppressed because they are a smaller group of people. Um, you can imagine a situation where. There might be four or five confederacies out of the 13 states and say the people in one confederacy uh, wanted to overthrow the government and form a new one because that particular government was being um, uh, a bad, you know, despotic regime. That regime could still turn to the other confederacies and say, hey, guys, we need a little help suppressing this, uh, you know, this uprising I got going on mm-hmm. over here because you wouldn't want a failed state, you know, and some unknown crazy government on your border for your own mm-hmm. security help me out and you know yeah <laughs> okay and that very well could you can you can imagine that case happening and then that insurrection um in the one uh confederacy being put down much easier than if it was against uh if it was one whole nation uh uprising against one uh totalitarian government and interesting uh to me also is and he then goes on and talks um i'm sorry did you want to chime in there because now i'm monologuing look <laughs> Well, I'm I'm not sure if I quite understand what you're saying there. So are you saying that the point being made that in a way, dual, you know, having multiple confederacies is is not so bad because the confederacies can help each other out? No, 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 no. What I'm saying is Hamilton was saying, uh, the way I read what Hamilton said, Mm -hmm. um, was that people are safer in the one large nation. Oh, yeah. Because it is easier to overthrow one government when they have all of their collective resources together in one large uprising, then if a confederacy or just 13 states was what developed, and in one state or one confederacy, 
the people tried, which and they had a smaller group of people and a smaller amount of resources, and they were trying to overthrow their government and say Confederacy A. Well, the government of Confederacy A can turn to the governments of Confederacy B and C and say, "Hey guys, help me overthrow and push down this um, this smaller insurrection in my Confederacy, in Confederacy A." And in Hamilton, and I agree with Hamilton in that sense that it is more likely that the the the, the um, the uprising in Confederacy A would be easier to squash in that scenario than if we had the whole nation together and the entire population, the majority of the populace were to decide we need to do another revolution. Okay, that's he was suggesting that people would be safer in a larger body, a larger nation collectively as a whole than if they were in smaller confederacies or individual states uh, is how I read it. Is that was that how you read it as well? I agree with parts of what you said. I okay. didn't see the, I didn't see him making the argument that the Confederacies were going to help each other. Though I thought no, no, no. That that's just how I read it. it. That's just that was my like next step thought on it. He didn't, oh, he, didn't okay. he didn't go that far to talk about that was Confederacy A, B, and Hamilton C plus. It was my Hamilton membership. plus premium Hamilton. membership. Yeah, that's what you get here when you come to the papers. Fairless, that inside <laughs> deep dive. That's what he meant to say. Uh, that's 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 where I took it. You know, when he when he's talking about how the people are are safer in a larger body uh, than in, in the, and, and that rebellions in small rebellions in small states or in one confederacy are easier to be crushed uh, than if it was if we were all together in all 13 states for one nation dealing with the federal government at some point in the future. Okay. My, my mind took it the next step of like I played out a hypothetical in my in my own head. You know, to kind of help me understand what he, what, I, I, you know, I just, you know, that's where I lost you. I yeah, I'm sorry. No, 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 no. He didn't. What he didn't, part was you and what part of Hamilton? Yeah, I was, Hamilton. you know, hey, you know, uh, we're just uh, intertwined here. We're got a mind meld, the Vulcan, exactly. Vulcan mind we're meld through the centuries. Hamilton. My, <laughs> to, to put to put my yeah. own framework on things in this paper, I've got really two principal problems mm -hmm. with how Hamilton lays out his argument. And right. one is the um, the whole context. One of them is the binary nature of his logic always. I, <laughs> I feel like whenever Hamilton's writing something, ever, whenever he's writing one of his papers, it's always all of one or all of nothing. Mm -hmm. So either you're someone who is a Constitution supporter or you're an idiot. There, there's yeah. no in between, you know. It's like there's no there's no principle disagreement, and um and, and that's I'm not going to go laundry list and list out all of his binary thinking yeah. of you know either black or white and one or the other nothing in between, but in this paper, that seems to come into play his binary thinking insofar as well, the the representatives of the people are either going to be operating in the best interests of the people or they're going to be the enemies of the people and there's nothing yeah. in between. Um, and in the, in the modern context, I think that's a really hard thing to say because you, you know, what is, what do 100% of the people all agree on in America is something that they all think is the most important issue. And what is one thing in America that they all should, everyone in America agrees should be dealt with the exact same way. I mean, a, the vast majority of problems that are, you know, and issues in the country nowadays are split anywhere from 50-50 to 60-40. Yeah. 
there's very few things, there's very few issues that you'll even find like a super majority on, you know, 66% plus. And so what does it mean to say that the representatives are acting in the best interest of the people, you know, because, because that's what his whole presumption is based on of the rebellion is, well, the representatives are presumably going to be doing what the people want because otherwise they wouldn't get elected. Mm-hmm. And if they don't, we're all going to realize they're doing the exact opposite of what we all want. We're going to rebel against them and we're going to win, of course, because there's a lot of us, not many of them. It's yeah. just a given. And when is history, when is the history of America ever played out like that or even the history of the world? Usually it's, yeah. you know, I mean, even, some even... fractions, you know, and even when we did go to, a situation yeah. of armed, you know, armed civil war in uh, the mid nineteenth okay. century. Mm-hmm. You know, with the American Civil War, even that wasn't a situation where it was like, you know, all the representatives were doing the exact opposite of people wanted. The North wanted one thing, the yeah. South wanted another thing, and there was a war about which of those things was going to win. So I think it's another logical fallacy by him yeah. of this binary context of it's either all of one thing or all of the other. Because even on the issue of, you ask people in the same political party, what's the most important issue for your political party right now? And you'll get five different answers depending on what what wing of the party they're in. My cynical nature is going to debate you there. all welcome sir. I welcome it. Their number one issue, they won't say it, but the number one issue that's important to the politicians in their party, they'll all agree. Obtaining and maintaining power. (laughs) Okay, beyond that, (laughs) then they'll have debate about what the important issues are. (laughs) <laughs> and that that and that would make it easy. It, it, that's that's what proves my point. I feel like okay. is that if all po- you know if all the politician wants is to maintain power, and if if there is this common universal will of something everybody wants, yeah, then what idiot of a politician wouldn't do exactly that? Because yeah. all you need to do is do what the people want. Yeah. Everyone knows the people what the people want because they want the same thing. You do that, you're in power forever. Yeah. What moron would do anything different? So you know, if, if you if you want to get voted in a, in a yeah. democracy, if you want to keep getting elected, yeah. and it's easy to determine what people want, you just do that. Then that's what you do, and you're a congressman for life. Yeah. Well, let me let me back up one. I thought I had you. You were talking about um, how Hamilton's sort of fallacy of. Um, I can't frame it the right way. That the idea that that everybody would agree agreement as to what the good thing was or what the bad thing was, and if it was oh, all yeah. bad, that, then everybody would just stand up. Right? Yeah, same idea. So, so he should know better because you don't have to go to the Civil War, in modern times. I mean, the Revolutionary War. It's not like everybody in America stood up on the same day and said, "You know what? We're going to overthrow England." Like, <laughs> you know, there in his are, own time, in his in own his time. Own that's, time that's, that's why he there lived. was a ton of Federalists and there was a ton of fe- anti-Federalists. Yeah, and both sides thought they were doing the right thing. Exactly. So it's not like the anti-federalists led by Jefferson or whoever were all in some smoke-filled with room Payne, with their, yeah, you know, yeah. saying, "Oh, we're going to be as evil as possible," and they were like a bunch of Whoa. Sith, dark yeah. Jedi's with red lightsabers who, like, Speaking "Oh, it'll be so great when we destroy America and you know bring down Hamilton and bring eternal <laughs> darkness onto America." No, they also believed that they were doing the right thing. Some of the most intense political struggles are by multiple factions. Who are opposed to each other, each of them thinking they're doing the right thing. Yeah. Funny you should mention this, Seth. Because <laughs> <laughs> you're going on and on about how this about Hamilton deals in absolutes. And and what is what does Obi Wan tell Anakin? 
Exactly, only Sith do in absolutes. That's right. And I've got, I'll have, I'll have several other Star Wars references to drop later on. Oh, oh wow! Okay, here we go. <laughs> I mean, I'm going, I'm going with the, some of the new stuff later new on. New stuff. I'm, I'm going to be, I'm going to try to appeal to the younger generations. The, the all right, well, the younger. <laughs> God, we're old. All right. <laughs> Well, let so, me go then into yeah, the, the other. I'm I off mentioned track. the yeah. binary nature of yeah. all the conflict. You know, he assumes mm-hmm. it's all black or white, and there's nothing in between. Which yeah. I cover how I think that's a logical fallacy. Mm-hmm. The other thing, and I, I have hit on it before, but I think it's it's even more stark in his paper is the context. Mm-hmm. It's not just a binary presumption in his papers, but it's also I he keeps assuming a context that I don't think is is accurate. Of he always seems to assume that all of the conflict is going to be primarily between federal and state government and that all the states and regions are, you know, all the lower levels are all going to be on the same side against the big bad federal government. And we've talked repeatedly about how, again, in American history, except for the very, very beginning when they're framing the Constitution deciding where power was going to reside throughout the entirety of the rest of American history, it's not usually been about who really cares about do the states have more power or the federal government more power? Even the people who act like they do. Really mm-hmm. what it's about is individual issues. Mm-hmm. On any given thing, it's like, what do what do we want? It's usually a political decision on, you know, political viewpoints. And it doesn't – and it divides oftentimes on regional lines, ideological lines. You know, in, the, in, in most election contexts, you look at a map of red versus blue and, you know – some states favor one position, other states favor another position. So that matters in the context of this paper because he lays out this idea that, well, if the federal government abuses its power, then the states are all going to band together and fight him. Yeah. And I say that's ridiculous. Well, he also suggests it, it never yeah. happened and it never will happen because in any given conflict, it's not going to be the states all uniting against the federal government. Well, you know. The Civil War is an excellent example. Some states thought one thing, mm-hmm. other states thought another thing. And in every election, you just look at you look at a presidential election map. Some yeah. states think A, some states think B. And so on any given conflict where it's federal government against the the states, quote unquote states, yeah. and you know, quote unquote federal government. Yeah. Some of those states will take up the mantle of being part of the federal government as the Union slash the North was in the Civil War. Mm-hmm. And other states are going to merge and become a rival power. And it's yeah. never it's never going to be states versus federal government. And it, he yeah. just keeps assuming this context and I feel like what, he should be he should be smarter than that. Well I I'm gonna give him the benefit of the doubt and see that he is. <laughs> but and and then ask and try and figure out why why I think he's doing it. But I, I would note that, you know, he spent other times in other papers bashing the inefficiency and the inability of the states to do anything. And now he, in this paper here again, suggests, oh, well, the state legislatures will be populated by these wonderfully enlightened men who That's an excellent point. will, will have the, the ability the to, see, protects us. to see from afar dangers at the national level and will be able to use all the workings and the organs of government to protect the people in the states from the nefarious the federal governments and the dark clouds on the horizon. The same groups and the same people that yeah. couldn't legislate their way out of a paper bag and other papers or raise taxes or do you anything. Can't have both ways. You can't have state governments run by geniuses and idiots at the same time. They've got to be one or the other. One or the other. And it's <laughs> ironic especially because it's all, you know, he's his binary thinking all the time is it's all one or the other. Mm-hmm. But now he wants them to be – his he's – 
this the state governments are Schrodinger's cat, essentially. Exactly. They're both geniuses and morons simultaneously, depending on what paper you're looking at. You know, one one might think that Hamilton knew that the average person reading these papers wouldn't actually read them all. And well, my, not past the parts about <laughs> Greece and <laughs> and statuary theft and whatnot. That's where he lost me for a yeah, while. Yeah. I was like, oh um, my god, I don't have time to investigate this. Uh, who stole what Greek statues? Oh, that's, yeah. I think he put fairly paper number six out there to just weed people out. We're like, you're not making it past number six or whatever that one that was ridiculous had 85 footnotes. People in it. back at the time were probably like, <laughs> I was reading those papers, but man, we just talked about all those statues and who was stealing them. Uh, yeah. That's where it lost. I'm done. done. <laughs> and then the Germanic, the different Germanic tribes. Yeah, that just whatever. <laughs> I don't know. I can see it. Why not? Um, so let's see. Give me another Star Wars reference. You said you had some other Star Wars references you were going to work in here. I'm, I'm, you got, I'm curious well, now. Well, that what? takes me to my next point, though. Right. And, and that's where I think, um, even if his argument worked at the time he wrote it. Yeah. You know, and this is getting towards the end of the paper, where he talks about how, well, the power of the people to resist mm-hmm. is going to always com- increase um, commensurate and proportionally with the ability of the state to, to maintain a military. Um, and maybe that was true for a while, so long as uh, people had smoothbore muskets that took them a minute to reload. Well, I'm mm-hmm. exaggerating a little bit, but a while to reload. Yes. Um, but, you know, when it, you get into the modern age of, you know, uh, machine guns, smart Laser. bomb, yeah. <laughs> you know, not to mention nuclear weapons, yeah. uh, you know, does it stop becoming true at some point, you know, especially considering how rebellions work, where they don't arrive on the scene fully formed, um, you know, if that becomes not true anymore, does it undercut Hamilton's entire point? Because, you know, it, especially within the last few decades, yes. because you could at least argue, argue hypothetically, like when you think about the world opinion beyond just national opinion. Yeah. Um, you know, you think back to the things like Tiananmen Square, mm-hmm. where, um, or even before that, some of the brutal suppressions of the Soviet Union of Eastern Bloc uh, demonstrations where they killed a bunch of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you have cameras showing a massacre, whatever else happens, the that's a real national black eye for whoever's, whatever country's doing it. Yeah. But something I think we underestimate now in the, the modern surveillance suppression state is <laughs> this idea of um, a lot of things... Uh, the proliferation of non-lethal weapons, mm-hmm. you know, not just, you know, you got tear gas, you got like rubber and sandbag shells, but now you've also mm-hmm. got like sound weapons, nausea weapons. Well, that's um, what, uh, what so happened down in the uh... fact for a nation who suppresses mm-hmm. a rebellion is a lot less than it would be if you actually killed people. You know, it's great. Yeah. You're not killing people, but you know, global outrage that might occur if you killed a large number of people to mm-hmm. suppress a rebellion is that going to be there the same way if all you did was give people um, really bad nausea and make them run away? Yeah. And But to suppress a rebellion, it could be equally, if not more, effective. Because, I mean, Justin, you take any given opinion on politics and say, you know, Kara, I think that we should do this with our country, and I would pause it to you, and I think it would make a good special episode idea. Mm-hmm. Um, how many beanbag rounds could you take to the face before you might be willing to explore opportunities? <laughs> alternate theories or alternate positions as to what you started with. Yeah. I think it wouldn't be many. I think I'm going to say less than five. Less than five? Yeah. 
Where shot a shot a tear gas right in the face. Yeah. We'll do a special episode. You will take a position. I will go find some kind of uh, combat shotgun ex- loaded exclusively with non-lethal rounds. I'm not uh-huh. a barbarian. And we'll, we'll see how many it takes for you to change your position on that particular issue. And I'm going to say less than five. Less than five. And it's in a face, too. We gotta specify that. In a face. No protect. Oh, man. I don't know if this I'm gonna send This will be a know. special episode uh, in the interest of democracy. Well, I tell you sure. what. I tell you what. Interaction uh, between democracy and firearms. You will You will, You will. will have to, uh, at a minimum, clear clear that with my wife, who <laughs> I've, over a lifetime had a, have had a fair amount of dental work. <laughs> And I don't think she's going to be too happy if I'm like, hey, honey, I'm going to do this special episode that's going to result in like thousands of dollars of dental work. You're cool so with what that, you're right? Is, your wife doesn't care about democracy. That's what I'm hearing. Because it's, all, it's, it's binary, Justin. It's all okay, one or the that's other. Right. Either you do this experiment or and democracy. I care about democracy, democracy or clearly I hate democracy. democracy. Yeah. Okay. Um, hmm. I wonder, wonder where else I've heard similar. Uh, sort of framings of logic before. So let's go back to um, this end this end idea. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to read this paragraph out loud just because we've made references to it because I think you and I read it different ways. And he starts the last paragraph by saying like, look, you know, it's the, the country, it's, you know, maintaining and raising and maintaining a large army takes a lot of resources that as a means of doing this increase, the population and natural strength of the community will also proportionally increase. And so the idea is that, and I'm with you so far, that you know, a larger population will be able to check a larger national government and a larger military. And then he goes on, he says this, he says, when, when will the time arrive that the federal government can raise and maintain an army capable of erecting a despotism over the great body of the people of an immense empire who are in a uh, situation through the medium of their state governments to take measures for their own defense? with all the clarity, regularity, and systems of independent nations. The apprehension may be considered as a disease for which there can be found no cure in the resources of argument and reasoning. To me, what he's saying there is the idea that you're going to have a situation where a government can be so large mm-hmm. over an empire that's this big or and, and, and a very large populace that it could suppress that people with through that military when they had all of the faculties available to them through self-elected government and representation, that they would allow that large populace would allow themselves to be suppressed is ridiculous. And if that's your position, then mm. it's a mental disease that I can't reason with and argue and, and, and discuss with you through reasonable argument and just to just go away. So yeah. he, he suggests that this worry, it's an impossibility. It's an impossibility. That's how and I read it. The problem with that is if, if you know, that impossibility is no longer an impossibility, well, yeah. is he preemptively <laughs> conceding that, okay, if that happens, there's nothing we can do anyways? Um, well, I don't think he's conceding because I really don't think he thought it was possible. <laughs> okay. I agree with you on that latter part. Okay. Now, does his argument become mooted by the fact that it is now possible today? Is that what you're asking? Yeah, and I think that takes me to – I think this is probably one of the times when I would be most – representative of some of the contrarian thoughts of the anti-federalists in that you know a paper like this helps you to see their point more because what i think he was taking is inconceivable is exactly what they were not only conceiving of but were terrified terrified of and you know because to hamilton the only problem 
in a nutshell with America at the time was that there wasn't enough power for the federal government to do what it needs to do. So, like, his primary focus in the Constitution, all the federal papers supporting it, and when he later became part of the government and, you know, started yeah. to make policy was all, you know, the, the thing we need to do is make, give the federal government enough power to fix all of our problems. Enough energy, he called it in the earlier paper, yes. Yeah, but by energy, let's be honest, he yeah. means power. It means power, resources, um, yeah. And the thing with power is that it's a, it's a neutral resource. You know, the same power that can be used to do good can be used to do bad. But he can only yeah. see the good side of it. He's like, yeah. well, you know, Washington's good, I'm good, we're all going to do good things. Um, yeah. And I think the fe- anti-federalists saw the potential for abuse. And they were writing from that angle, and Hamilton's writing from his own. Mm-hmm. And that takes me to, you know, my capstone Star Wars references. If you want to see, if you want to really contextualize what I think the anti-federalists thought of Hamilton as, mm-hmm. um, in, in trying to give all this power, unlimited power, uh, and unlimited discretion to the federal government, the anti-federalists think, you know, were thinking of um, Hamilton as basically being um, the uh, Grand Moff Tarkin of the Empire. And he's out there building essentially the governmental Death Star that okay. is going to allow, you know, it, the federal government's going to have so much power yeah. and ability to project power and fear, uh, you know, throughout the country yeah. that no one can stop it because any, because that's, that's Hamilton's entire point of these last few papers is if someone tries to rise, rise up against us, we will obliterate them. There will be nothing <laughs> left. We will come down to the, against them like a super laser and just blast them out of existence. There will be no more Shays Rebellion because yeah. we'll have enough power to stop it and nip it in the butt. And so the anti-federalists, are they not, you know, continue this analogy, in trying to put in things like a Bill of Rights and also the checks and balances and also the manufactured inefficiencies designed in the system, not just the anti-federalists, but the ones... Uh, the people who put, took part in the Constitution, who, you know, uh, made it less efficient, mm-hmm. are they not the Jen Ursos of the story? No, Galen Ursos Galen of the Urso, story, yeah. who, yeah. you know, are building what they believe is the necessary thermal exhaust port into the government. So if it gets out of hand, <laughs> uh, some trumped-up moisture farmer can put a couple protons with torpedoes in it and uh, just blast it from existence, yeah. so it stops being a pox upon its own people. Well, I, I will say this. Uh, at a minimum, you've made me want to go back and watch a Rogue One again. So uh. <laughs> that's about no. the only one of the newer movies I could really stomach. So that's Yo, I, stomach. I, I, I mean, I think Rogue One was like possibly one of my favorite Star Wars movies of oh, all I time. Oh, I thought it was great. It, it was, was a great, like yeah. heist type movie in the yeah. in the vein of like Guns of Navarone or something yeah. of that nature. No, it was it was so good. And I, you know, I know Solo didn't do that great box office wise. I mean, compared to all the other ones, but. Um, or all the other more recent, what has become like known to be a like great hit. You got to make a billion dollars or more anymore. And you know, and what it only made like silver many hundred million or whatever. But honestly, I really like solo too. I'm, I'm, I'm so tired of the Skywalker storyline at this point. <laughs> I just want it to end. You know, like they've destroyed it. Well, in the new trilogy, you know, I'm not even really sure who the Skywalkers are as of yet. So I, I will sort know. of agree with you. I wasn't a huge fan so, of it. But uh, all right. Anyways, um, to so, the point though, of this paper, I think that that's who the anti-federalists think of themselves as, as they yeah. are the resistance, the rebellion of like they don't want 
America to become England Part Two. Yes. Whereas Hamilton is sort of fine with that. So here's I, I agree with everything you say, but the one other thing that there's one thing that I wanted to point out is that when Hamilton talks to the military and the use of the military by the national government, mm-hmm. he you know of course this this whole all these papers are a sales pitch, right? Like come on, the water's fine, guys, join up with the you know the Constitution. Mm-hmm. Uh, nothing to see here, nothing to worry about. You still get the you still see from in in these papers the idea that the the military won't be used will be used for defense, mm-hmm. right? Like, if it needs to go into a state to put down a rebellion, fine. We'll have it, and it'll be there, and it'll be ready. If a foreign power attacks us from afar on the waterways, in mm-hmm. the, our ports, we have to have a navy to be able to defend our shipping routes and our shorelines. If, mm-hmm. you know, there are frontier um, insurrections from other European countries... Uh, that are still out there on our borders mm-hmm. or Indian, you know, Native Americans, we have to have the ability to defend ourselves. We can't just leave the states one at a time to be picked off. Mm-hmm. You know, what you don't see is the concept of we're going to take our power with our military and gl- try to influence or suppress people into our point of view. Either through, you know. Um, well, man. I don't know. I would argue that domestically, that's what he's arguing is with the suppression. Is if anybody disagrees with us, we're going to suppress them. Okay. Internationally, yeah. I would agree with you. Okay, from an international, think, internationally, yeah. it's just more of a concept of they don't have the ability to do it, so it's academic no. anyway. So it's academic. I mean, the, the United States. I'm just wondering. I was wondering if you could draw. Yeah. has no ability to project power. Oh, I understand. So it's all academic discussion. Well, I was just wondering if, if we should take from the fact that Hamilton doesn't talk on an international level of projecting power as some sort of guidance that maybe that's not what we should be doing. But you suggest that it's only a, lim- a function of his horizon is only limited by the resources available to him at the time, that he was only looking at projecting power domestically because that's all he could conceivably foresee. Um, well, it, it wasn't even. Yeah, I don't think know, it was even on his to-do list of that's like. That's what I mean. Yeah, you know, when you so, look at when he was in power as part of the Washington administration, you know, they didn't even have the framework of a framework yet. They were building <laughs> everything from scratch. Yeah. So, like, you know, was, that was one of the reasons why he was opposed to Jefferson's, you know, yeah. d- request to intervene in the wars between uh, Britain and France is because mm-hmm. they just had no ability to do it. You know, mm-hmm. Hamill is trying to control and consolidate and strengthen the the Union of the United States then to be a great thing. And mm-hmm. it's like the, the worst thing in his mind you could do, as, especially as Treasury Secretary, Spray where that's his focus, yeah. is to do, engage in a foreign war that's going to undercut everything you're building at home. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, yeah. Hamilton sees things I, very I was, much through his own lens very yeah. often. It, from, was, it, that's what I've got increasingly from going through these papers. Yeah, and there was no way that a foreign war in during the Washington administration was going to serve Hamilton's vision for the country, mm-hmm. because there was just no means to do it. You know, it, it would have been interesting to see what Hamilton's position, you know, would have been down the road in, uh, you know, when the issues of the that led to the War of 1812 came up. Whether mm-hmm. by that point he if he would have become more of an internationalist, but we'll never know yeah. what uh, his position would have been on that. I was trying to to look and see when I asked that question. I was I was trying to look to see if maybe we should glean some guidance that that the fact that both the 
well, the Anti-Federalists didn't want to have a strong military in the first place and that even the, the Federalists here in Hamilton was only suggesting using it for domestic purposes, you know, to maintain borders and that kind of protect the home front. And if there is some sort of rebellion, you know, that is small and radical, deal with it as some sort of mm-hmm. and view it as as some sort of limit uh, on the use of military force by us in the world that we should be a lesson that we should maybe be looking back to and relearning in today's modern world that we're living in. But now that I think about it more, I think, you know what, I can't make that logical leap because really, like you said, the idea of projecting power internationally to Hamilton wasn't on his to-do list. It wouldn't even occur to him. And so therefore we can't make, we can't look at the papers and take away from it this idea that, well, this is how we're supposed to use the military because this is how Hamilton and Madison and, and Jay on occasion would uh, <laughs> would have suggested using it. Yeah, I don't think you can make you can make. I don't think I can make that argument. Yeah, I had forgotten about it, but I was yeah. just uh, looking online to remember. But like you know, there was a. So I'm without guidance here, is what I'm saying. You know. Yeah, not in the Federalist paper. I think that'd be incorrect inference yeah. because after the Revolutionary War ended, and you know, during the Washington administration. You know, there was tensions with France, mm-hmm. and actually Hamilton was one of the ones who, you know, not only was not advocating of coming into helping France, he was actually advocating to uh, march down and grab Florida uh, from Spain, the uh, ally of France. Just yeah. and again, it wasn't a particular virtue thing. It's just like, hey, there's something we can grab to make our country bigger and more powerful. Let's just do that. Yeah, uh, Hamilton is always very utilitarian. He's, you know, he's not. He, you know, he's might be structurally idealistic in like mm-hmm. you know building. You know, he wants to build things, but he's very flexible as far as uh, the way he does it. Sometimes. Well, I gotta tell you, on this run of Hamilton papers, really makes me long for a uh, another one by Madison because I. <laughs> I'm just, yeah, you know, Madison I, I is much more the moderate, you know, and I, uh, Madison does at least write with an assumption that you can, it, well, he's more the open is okay. to the idea yeah. that you can disagree with him without <laughs> yeah. necessarily being a fool. Yeah. But I mean, you see, like you said, Hamilton's push to consolidate power into a ruling class in, in the national level. And I'm thankful for Madison being a part of this. To yeah, at least you, to the best that he Madison can and, and, uh, to diffuse Hamilton and fracture power. To go different ways. Yeah, you know, um, and and Madison's you know intentional sort of exhaust ports that he put into Hamilton Death Star. Yeah, you know, Star, yeah. because <laughs> right. yeah, you see it. You know, <laughs> you know it, I think it's not accidental. No, that Hamilton will drop the word empire now and again. Well, he did it again in his yeah, papers in this one because that's how he views. The potential of the United States, he thinks of it as the next great world empire, mm-hmm. you know, the the next England, you know, mm-hmm. the next uh, Roman Empire, perhaps. You know, yeah. I think he'd be very comfortable with that imagery. Um, and if there's one theme that is consistent throughout Hamilton's efforts, you know, to, in the government, it is, you know, consolidation of power and building power. And I think. I, I will give him the benefit of the doubt. I I don't think that he was th- – I think he was assuming I – th- I think when he was thinking about giving more power to the federal government, he really himself did sincerely believe that that power would be used 
to do good things. Benevolent, worst, benevolent uh, ruling class, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, he, yeah, yeah, I think he was uh, very much uh, – I, I think that he was very comfortable with the idea of the people who um, know the most and the most qualified. You know, he's yeah. dropped that hint several times. The best people should be in charge of making all the decisions. I, mm-hmm. I don't think he would be uncomfortable with that. Yeah. But, again, the problem with – you know, the, the idea of consolidating power is your governing principle, again, is power is value neutral. Yeah. Um, and the same thing under a, you know, American saint like Washington, it can be used mm-hmm. to do very good things, can, you know, that same power can be used to do very bad things. Uh, there is, uh, and, and and that's something that fans of power and building it, um, are not always quick to recognize. You know, yeah. there's a something I'd like to touch on down the road when I can get the site accurately. There's a, and it very much flows with uh, Hamilton's tendencies to cite ancient Greek yeah. history and whatnot. But I can't remember the exact. Uh, there's a Greek play, and I'm trying to remember which one. I don't remember if it's Agamemnon or one of the ones by Sophocles. But in any case, um. It's one of those tragedies. It's like a Shakespearean tragedy, but it's a mm-hmm. Greek tragedy. Where, like in it, a bunch of horrible things happen, but then, like a good story, mm-hmm. um, the heroes have good things happen too. And then, you know, in in Greek in Greek plays, there was often like what was a chorus who yeah. would like be sort of like the singing narrators who would sort of tell you what you're supposed to be getting out of a particular scene. And early on in his play, they were talking about how great great zeus was you know the greek head greek god of like you know zeus is super awesome he's doing all these things to help the heroes and make them so wonderful you know and you gotta trust zeus you gotta trust god basically he, you know he and that'll get you through whenever whenever one of the heroes does you know praises zeus or does something zeus wants then um you know good things would invariably happen and you think that that's basically the lesson uh and then at the end of it uh the the narrator chorus comes out and basically says you know, hey, look at all these wonderful things that have happened. Hey, but also look at all these bad things that have happened. You know, good people have died, bad people have, have uh, prospered. Mm-hmm. And they said, and the, one of the last things they leave you with is the audience is, you know, as you're leaving here tonight, contemplate. And again, I'm really paraphrasing here. I'm going to, I'm going to misquote and mischaracterize it and call it paraphrasing. Okay. Um, <laughs> and so the narrator, narrator basically says, as you're leaving here tonight and you're contemplating the heroics and the moral lesson think to yourself that yes zeus is great he is all powerful and all and all all knowing and all wise and uh, omnipotent and what is the and look across all the good and all the bad and what is there but that which is zeus in other words you can't give zeus the credit for all the good things that has happened Mm -hmm. without also blaming him for the bad and it's pretty deep message for the play of like you know you gotta confront that and how you process it and similarly you know, I mean, I guess it has the the more stark connotations are probably more religious than governmental. But uh, I think it has a role governmental is whenever you're building up um, a ultra powerful leviathan like government and thinking about all the good things you could do by making you know by strengthening the government and removing obstacles to its operation, you know, a part of you has to be the cynical anti-federalist and think about. But what happens when this power is, you know, being used for not good purposes? What mm-hmm. what same potentialities are we creating? And like, 
then that's power. The power is Zeus. You know, mm-hmm. what is there but the power? The power can do good. The power can do evil. And anytime you build into it, having faith in the good, you got to be aware of the bad that can happen as well. You mean like what might happen when a domestic spy program gets misused? <laughs> yeah. Because, I mean, look at all these issues. Of yeah. Like, you know, everyone thinks, we'll do this because whoever is in charge is we'll so never, wise yeah. and good. Yeah. You know, people who... Uh, there's probably a lot of people who, when, you know, President Obama was the person in charge of uh, targeted drone strikes, they didn't have a problem with it because they thought, well, Obama's a good guy. And if he's mm-hmm. attacking these individuals, they're probably bad. Mm-hmm. And then those same people, um, you know, now that uh, President Trump is exercising them, they probably presume that it's not being good used to kill the right people. It's being abusive and it's dangerous. Mm-hmm. But the the same thing probably happened in reverse. Yeah, probably sure the people did. who yeah. approve of Trump's use of it yeah. were suspicious of Obama's use of it. Um, yeah. And you know that that's one of the, the that's one of the defining challenges of our democracy is what what can we put in place that can meet, I think I mentioned this before, that the hardest of standards to meet, which is the bad man standard. You know, what what laws, what processes are good enough and robust enough that they can stand up even to a person with the worst possible motives and the most, you know, the most uh, underhanded methods and the most impure final goals. And that's always a hard thing to do. And I think that you know, that's one of the reasons I think we started talking about doing this this podcast, mm-hmm. examining these papers, is the idea that uh, it's a challenge. And mm-hmm. you know, by looking at these papers, uh, we might find some guidance on that issue of yeah. what can we do uh, with the guidance of the founding fathers to make a, a democracy can stand up to you know not just the the test of time, but the tests of good and bad government. And mm-hmm. I think we've gotten that. But I think mm-hmm. it's also been in a way that's been different than what we've anticipated. Yeah. Because um, I didn't anticipate that uh, that Hamilton was going to be such a proponent of like unconditional power. Yeah, but I never knew. Yeah. Hamilton, I think we could also pr- critique, you know, that idea. Yeah. No, I never knew he was uh, from that mold. I just, you know, so that's definitely been a learning experience for me. Um, I never realized how uh, instrumental Madison was. Um, yeah. In, in, and in, how in, little in, Jay wrote. Yeah, and how really? How I mean, bad he was at dodging rocks. Sad. He, just, <laughs> he was not a if you know not a. I gotta go back. I thought we. I thought I debunked that. I thought it was like. Well, he got sick. You're right. He got sick. He got. Yeah. He, he got. It wasn't the rock. It was some other Something else. Divine, yeah. Some sickness. Yeah. So anyway, anyways, um, he'll come back. He's got one more greatest hit out there. It's coming back. I'm like. It'd be five years by the time we get to it at the rate we're going. <laughs> we accelerate. We're going to accelerate. You're right. So um, we'll just need to start doing these in blocks. I think. I think one of the things yeah. that's been most challenging is finding about time. this military series is that we've separate. You know, them being separated by um, periods of time. Yeah, uh, it's been a little more challenging. So maybe what we should do is uh, look forward and see what the next block is and Not try to do it. Yeah, block like be... recording schedule probably be uh, a little more uh, cohesive on our end in the, as far as our <laughs> thought processes. Um, that said, uh, I don't. I think we've uh, gone over this one pretty well, pretty thoroughly. So. Yeah, I think so. I think we've covered uh, it pretty well. Uh, yeah. I think that one of the upsides, I'll say, to these papers being 
relatively straightforward these last few military papers is it allows us a little bit greater ability to color outside the lines a little yeah. bit zoom back at some of the larger issues i know uh, in contrast to some of the earlier papers we did that had a lot more <sighs> painstaking history that we had to break down yeah where it was a challenge just to tread you know yeah. uh wade through that this is i you know this has been a little bit looser and it's a little nice in that way i agree all right well uh Thanks for all for joining us again. We'll see you uh, next time. Uh, I'm not sure if it'll be on a special episode, off topic, or. Um, but our next regular one will be 29. So. Next, next, the next numbered episode will be 29. Yeah. So we'll uh, we're gonna try and work in some some additional materials here and there um, uh, between the papers to kind of just add some additional context and flair uh, and go from there. But thanks again, always for uh, joining us. We'll see you next time. See you in 29. All right. Bye.